think this is where everything finishes up. We just may be at the end of the line. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy weekend to you. I'm Gary Nance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a weekend and happy, of course, to be working with tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you doing today? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And I took the elevator up to our floor here to get to work and also got my coffee ready to go for a radio show. Now, what does that mean? Do you usually take the stairs? Take the, well, I mean, I didn't want to slip and fall on my way up. There's a lot of stairs to climb, you know. Ask Joe Biden. <laughs> so yes indeed and coffee okay. that's that's de rigueur if you're going to live in and work in seattle we all know that that is great well we're happy to have you with us once again nathan working in your good company today suzanne this is one of those days i, I really love when i get on the radio and i get the chance to meet someone new we are we're debuting somebody today i love that too and today we are talking about somebody who not only has credentials galore standing all by themselves. But in addition, he comes via a good recommendation from our friend Vincent Jenna. Well, very good. And somebody else we like. Who is? Vincent Jenna. Oh, okay. He himself. <laughs> yes. Right. The aforementioned. Yes, that's right. Party of the I, first I part. I also believe that uh, our guest today knows Mark Anthony. Oh, well, if he's going to be trafficking in those circles, I know. Then we're going to have to be on our best behavior. Let's, let's do that. Let's be nice. Jacob Cooper joins us. Call him Jake for short. It's nice and informal. Jake holds a Master of Social Work degree and is a licensed clinical social worker. Jacob Cooper is also a certified Reiki master, certified hypnotherapist, and specializes in past life regression therapy. That's a Suzanne Mitchell favorite. As a therapist, Jacob works with individuals, groups, and families in managing emotional barriers, promoting improved wellness and resiliency. Jake also incorporates mindfulness and a spiritual approach to focus on the connection between mind, body, and spirit. In effect, this teaches individuals how to improve their cognitive processing and shift their perspectives. And in all of this, we still have plenty to discuss about Jacob Cooper's book, which is called... Life After Breath, How a Brush with Fatality Gave Me a Glimpse of Immortality. Talking about your near-death experience, y'all. Very excited, very and, excited. And so this is one of those get-to-know-you interviews. Lots to tell, and Jacob Cooper is with us now. Jake, we're so glad to have you. It's such an honor to be here with you. Uh, thank you, thank you. I, I couldn't be more honored. I'll bet if we went through a list of names, we'd find all kinds of people we know in common, too. So very good. You're in good company. Yes, welcome to the club. Many of those folks we have had on the show. And now your turn. Because we like to call this a get-to-know-you interview the first time around, Jake, why don't you give us at least the capsule summary and throw in some details about who you are as you see yourself now, relative to the extraordinary experience you had at the age of three, and then we'll get to all the stuff in between. Yeah, that's a very good question, Gary. Um, I would say I, I'm a, an explorer of my own identity each and every day, and I'm an explorer of infinite consciousness. Um, I don't pretend to have a totality of understanding 
of myself, of life itself, or the other side from my near-death experience, but rather someone who got a glimpse of uh, the eternity. And so I see myself as very open-ended and someone who's exploratory about life and just trying to find different angles to see it differently. And my goal is to constantly connect to the creator within um, within myself so I could recreate, rebrand, and regenerate uh, a difference within myself and other people's lives. So I'm never close-ended. That's how I kind of see myself, if that makes sense. You know, Jacob, we have talked to a number of people on this show who have had near-death experiences. So you wouldn't have to explain what that is because our listenership is well attuned to the afterlife and near-death experiences and mediumship and, and all of that. What I found so interesting in your story that was different from anyone else's story that I've ever read is that your event, which um, was a uh, seminal event that determined a lot of what was happening in your life, happened at the age of three. And so that I have not heard before. I've heard of, you know, other people as adults having that experience. I've never heard somebody as a small child having that experience. And at such a young age, you can't really process what has happened to you. But what was that triggering event at age three? Yes, um, I had at the time an highly contagious upper respiratory virus called whooping cough, otherwise known as pertussis, um, which led to me losing oxygen and suffocating you know, at the age of three. I happened to be at the park with family friends and um, you know, just kind of going there and I was climbing up a ladder. And at the last rung of the ladder, I suffocated and I lost you know, all my capacity to breathe and everything within my body and my brain, you know, like a power breaker in the home shut down. And uh, from, from losing myself and losing my body, I was able to find uh, something so much more beyond what I previously held as the totality of myself, you know, connection to, to nature. And um, there's a saying, and sometimes in order to find yourself, you have to be willing to lose yourself. And certainly at the age of three years old, whatever self that I had within that body, that was gone and I was forever changed from that moment of suffocation. What were the senses that came into play? Did you hear voices? Did you see things? Did you black out? What, what was going on with you physically at the moment where you stopped breathing? What then took over? Yeah. Well, I look back on it that death obviously is something that I don't fear, but the dying process was quite traumatic. Hence why I do believe why I'm able to remember it, because I can't think of anything more traumatic than suffocating, you know, just losing, you know, the breath, you know, that's that's our anchor to this lifetime, to this world. And when you lose that, I was in kind of like a weird incubational place between the place between here and there. I wasn't here and I wasn't quite there. I was just, just in this weird you know, in between place. And so losing the breath was, was an immense traumatic experience. And, you know, I remembered my brain literally be, being deprived of oxygen and I, I heard a large crack within my brain. Mm. And once that happened, you know, as an allegorical statement says, my brain cracked open and God came in, you know, that, that happened to me. Um, and so I was aware and privy to 
a lot of different things which are well chronicled in Life After Breath. You know, one of the dimensions was angels that I was aware of that was an overlay right over my body. I, I was aware of my body and the, um, uh, you know, the, the disembodied state out of my body that I was in. I was aware of, for lack of a better term, for a practical st standpoint, you know, the only term I could describe it is an awareness of God or the all that ever is and ever was, an awareness of my own spiritual guides, soul family members, previous carnations, uh, life path. Um, I had a, an awareness of Christ consciousness, which, uh, which hopefully we could get into in a little bit uh, to explain. But it was a full-blown euphoric um, celestial experience on the other side and just kind of uncovering all those things that we're forever connected to that sometimes we forget are inside of us and all around us. Gary, I hope you don't mind. I've got one more question. I, I want to sneak Go in right here. And it was something that I only thought of while you were speaking and giving me that answer. And that is that I understand from your bio that you uh, are working in past life regression therapy. And so what we have heard quite often on this show is that there are times when something has occurred in a past life, which will show up in a current life in the form of scars or experiences that people say that was related to my last life. Do you have any sense about your suffocating being related to how you may have died in another life? That's a wonderful question. Um, and, and, it's a great, it. <laughs> and, and, and it's a great point. But certainly as a past life regression therapist, I do believe uh, messages are repeated until the greater lessons are embraced. And I think mm. from completion, we begin uh, and we begin anew, but we carry over not just the pathologized, you know, bad stuff, but we also carry over our good stuff you know how could you possibly explain mozart playing the piano as a child you know or or, or uh, you know some of these stellar athletes just picking up a ball and just gravitating to it you know like you see pictures of lebron james or kobe bryant just as children with ball you know basketballs and they're just naturally just born gifted things that you just can't teach and so you know that that whole savant kind of situation is not stuff that you could learn within this lifetime but to answer your question and to not get too New Yorky and too wordy, because I do have a habit of that. So my apologies. Uh, I I would say, and I and I highlight this in Life After Breath, that my last carnation in which I committed suicide, I would say from my own analysis, and this isn't evidentially factual, but when I examined my near-death experience, I would say when I took my own life, you know, was an allegory, was symbolic with my near-death experience. You know, for instance, the symbolism of the light at the end of the tunnel, the symbolism of entrusting that when you are feeling the utmost suffering, the utmost pain, behind those shadows are eternal ecstasy, eternal light. And so sometimes in order for us to see the light, much like the stars, we have to first see the darkness. And that's how we are able to see the light. You know, so from, I think within my last carnation, I do remember just having my back against the wall, not seeing any hope. And so I do believe the near-death experience was to remind my soul and other souls that when our back against the wall, you know, and we're breathless and we have nothing to latch onto, we're grasping for straws, 
we have to look within. We have to remind ourselves that there's an eternal part of ourselves that can never be destroyed, damaged, or harmed. And sometimes it's through the shakeup of consciousness that we are able to touch in to that part. And so I think for myself and, and future listeners, the healing that took place from the last suicide attempt on my back against the wall and the reminder that there is a light at the end of every tunnel and that light is within and to remind herself that that is the only thing that will last and has eternal legs to stand on, if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense to us because we are friendly to that point of view, Jake, and our listeners certainly are. We know our demographic. Let me for a moment play, not devils, but doctor's advocate here. I would love to get your response to, and perhaps you experienced this from somebody who was trying to dissuade you from the mental path you were on. How about the researchers, the scientists, the doctors who would say, clearly in your case, we're talking about the random firings of a dying brain. And all of this is well explained within the bioelectrical activity within the cranium. If they say this sort of thing to you, what big point are they missing? What allows you to refute this medical and mundane explanation for what you experienced at age three? It's a wonderful question. You know, the whole argument of consciousness produced by the brain or consciousness filtered through the brain. Uh, but I would say, you know, to their point, when you are very compromised and when your brain uh, isn't working properly, you know, you should not have heightened thoughts, heightened awareness. You should at the very least kind of like, you know, look at Eben Alexander and his near-death experience. And he was very experiencing very little awareness early on in his NDE and then everything else opened up. And so for myself, you know, when my brain was deprived of oxygen, you know, I should have very little awareness or very little memory, you know, of what happened. Uh, how could I remember this and how could I be aware of higher thought, higher awareness, far greater than my own body? And so um, if the brain is not functioning properly or is quite compromised, you know, then you will have compromised thought, compromised sense of reality. And so for me, this was a much heightened sense of reality. And so it reminded me that the brain was just merely a filter of consciousness, you know, that when my brain w stopped really working properly was when I was aware of the other world, the, the doorway to eternity. And so I really understand the brain as our great ally between the two worlds, as a great opener to allow inf the infinite to come into the finite body. And so that really has really spearheaded my motive to get into meditation, to get in hypnotherapy, because it really helps to eat people out to get into the deeper, to the deeper layers of their own brainwaves so that they could be open channels uh, to the doorways of eternity within this lifetime. I have come to the tentative conclusion because I like to be open-minded, but it seems to me after years of thinking about this and talking to many people on this show about it, when it comes to consciousness, capital C consciousness, I am persuaded at least that it uses all the organs available to it for expression of a higher self or the great oversoul, a term that I didn't invent, but I'll use it. Because if, if it is not encumbered by a school of thought, and we'll get to that in a moment with you, Jake, a particular religious tradition or scientific skepticism, perhaps, or downright cynicism, 
consciousness then can use the human brain as a filter and as a means of expression, rather like an honest broker of perception, opening you up to the greater implications of this universe, universe in which we live. That is the glory of the thing. And yet my most aspirational, I tend to think of consciousness in that way, and certainly not as the firings of a living brain, which then dies and with it my existence because I'm extinguished like someone blowing out a candle. It's it's amazing. And, you know, I, I think we're, you know, just touching the precipice of the brain and consciousness. But, you know, for instance, uh, you know, for people to have, uh, you know, like, for instance, when I have some clients within hypnosis, I've seen this like once or twice, they start speaking different languages that they didn't even know, which is like a clinical term. I think that's called xenoglossy, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, you know, just events that they weren't privy to, and they get into these deeper states of awareness, uh, you know, and they open up other parts of themselves that they didn't know. Or when people are, you know, having like lucid visitations on their deathbed or speaking a language that they didn't speak you know, and, you know, maybe past the age of four or five years old and going back to that vernacular. So it, you know, the brain is just amazing. Uh, but yes, you know, if you read a little bit my, my, about my own near-death experience, I wasn't really privy to, you know, a lot of these encounters that I had. I wasn't taught all these things. You know, these things were in the doorways of my heart that was buried by, you know, my development in this lifetime, in this culture, in this religion, but they were always there and they never left me. I, I just lost sight of it for a moment as we can all get a little bit amnesic in this lifetime. Jake, I just wanted to bring this up so we're clear. Uh, it, I don't think I'm hearing this from you, but let's just be very clear with everyone. In a previous lifetime, you did or didn't, you, you're the one who could explain it better than anyone. Did you or did you not commit suicide to get out of the pain you were in seeing no hope? on the horizon? Or was it more like there, and I'm sorry to be trivializing here, I don't mean it, but are there some people do you think who, who might commit suicide wanting to reshuffle the cosmic deck in, in order to rebirth themselves and try again? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Much like anything else, it's not a one size fits all. I think with any action, it, you know, it's very subjectively based. Uh, for some, suicide is a relief uh, from from the pain that they're experiencing. You know, you know, it's there's just this overflow of pain. They just don't know what to do with it, and they, you know, have that attempt. I mean, for for myself, you know, this was back against the wall. You know, kind of hubris, everything falling, and I just saw you no know, end in sight to suffering. You know, so it wasn't you know just kind of trying to go to another dimension, another reality, but rather feeling like there's just too much to carry and I just felt very trapped. And so not just with the near-death experiences, but different visitations post NDE, I was getting this. And then I speak about this in Life After Breath. I've had, you know, an intuitive that picked up on the descriptives that I was seeing and just kind of haunted by my childhood, you know, of the room and situations and that I did take my own life bottom line within my last carnation. And so I, do, I think there's a collective and individual ties to, you know, different stuff that we have and certainly working within the field of mental health, you know, as well as healing that last carnation and working with passive aggression was all a part of a collective, you know, healing from, from that particular circumstance. I'm very thankful that you put it that way because I, I 
wouldn't want to be accused of suggesting because I don't work in the mental health field. I could benefit from the mental health field, but I don't work in it myself there. And I would never want to be accused of advocating that if times are very tough for you, you could take your own life on the presumption that reincarnation is real and simply try again later in cosmic time. I don't think that would be characteristic of good mental health practice. Right. No. I think I think everybody does have their time, but I think there is a an additional problem that you have when you decide that you're going to exit at this point, you I don't think you know what you're going to be facing on the other side. And from what we've heard, it's oftentimes a lot of sorrow and regret. And, and so for those who take their own lives. right so I, I'm not advocating that and either. this is the idea of the life review did you happen to right. experience one of those you only had three years into this lifetime Jacob but did you undergo what is commonly referred to as a life review yes and a lot of people think of life reviews as just in this lifetime but I I view and I say the word past life but I think it's almost all on one the unfoldment of one lifetime we just have different bodies different cultures different time frames so I think the past life understanding was all a part of the life review and you make a great point because a lot of people will say oh it works out what's the point of you know staying here and, and I think we are here for a unique reason and I don't think we are given any challenge that we can't handle within this lifetime. And so much of this is being able to understand our challenges is something that really makes us stronger in all accounts and are there to be faced. And we have an infinite amount of support and belief system in our ability to overcome that. Otherwise, I don't, don't believe we would have been given them or here. You know, so it's all possible for us step by step to overcome our unique challenges uh, with proper support, proper awareness and proper foundation. One of the things I wanted to get into with you was your um, background and your family background and your religious background, because I, I think there is, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there not a, a little bit of a dissonance between your uh, religious background as a Jew and looking at this near-death experience and reincarnation. That is not part of uh, that philosophy, is it? You know, it's interesting. You know, when I was studying reincarnation and past life regression, and you look at all major religions, Christianity, Judaism, you know, you know the Muslim faith, you know, there are talks of reincarnation and the roots of it, you know, but, you know, those aren't broadcasted at the surface, you know, they're quite hidden. You know, for instance, you know, Jesus spoke about, you know, past lifetimes, but I think it was the Council of Constantinople, Council of Constantine in two or 300 AD that banned reincarnation discussions. And so I think in a way, um, how do I say this without trying to be offensive, but, you know, there is a controlling element there's a political and social movement that have happened with religions throughout time and i view reincarnation as as a breakthrough breakthrough understanding where that individuates people from collective ideological belief systems there's an individual belief systems that happens that could cause you to stray from you know collective ideologies um, and so uh, and it's also very empowering. And so to understand yourself, your individual connection. And so I think part of the issue was there's this collective inherited belief system 
that spoke to myself on the surface, but didn't speak to myself, you know, directly. You know, it was a God that you almost had to work towards in a transactional dynamic rather than a, a God that loved you for not what you did, but who you eternally were. And so there was an unconditional, um, diametrically different philosophical engagement that I had within my own direct experience than at times, you know, some of the ideologies that you inherit that might be a bit divergent from the core truth of, you know, the faith, you know, that, you know, that they strayed away from, you know, within communal ideological belief systems. My my sense from reading your book was that there was a struggle during a period of years when you um, when you were kind of wrestling with your faith and what it was that was happening to you, and I think that came out in the book where you were you were trying to figure out how to have your faith and and also to know the truth about what had happened to you. Does that make sense? Oh, it, you know, it was a big struggle, and particularly, you know, the issue that I had, and I can't speak for everyone, but for myself, I grew up in a more in that orthodox traditional environment. And so there was almost this pompous monopolization, you know, of God and truth, you know, from someone else. And it wasn't, you know, asking each person what they thought of it. It was something that you just inherently studied and took on. It wasn't something that you embodied or had inside of you. And so subliminally, I'm sure that that caused a lot of opposition, you know, with my experience and the diametric difference with uh, what I was taught. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of struggle, but but particularly when it, when it came to the rigidity and rule basis and, you know, all this stuff, it was very much a God that was, you know, as they broadcast it to be all knowing and all loving all this, you know, but it was a God very much uh, of this world who was jealous, vengeful, you know, judgmental. And it, it seemed very much of this earth. And, and so it was very foreign to me, that, that kind of teaching. It seems from a lot of the people that we have talked to that there's 31 flavors of religion, all of them man-made, and no one religion has all the answers. Hopefully you use them to find the answers for yourself about your life and your purpose for being here. But, um, but, but because they are man-made, that they don't really, they, they're, they're not all encompassing, they're just a portal. And, and, and everybody, no matter what their religious background, has to work through that particular religion to actually get to the divine, because it isn't right there in that teaching because of, of the kinds of things that you just said, the rigidity and the rules and things like that. And it doesn't matter what your religion is, they all have them. This is our religion, this is what you will believe. If you want to be one of us, then this is our teaching. Are you with us or are you somewhere else? Right. And so as we group into these, these cultural groups all over the planet, it, it seems like, you know, in, in all of this tribal thinking that, you know, you have to believe the way the tribe believes. And you, you can't be an island all by yourself with, with no thoughts and, and, and no way of looking at the world, trying to discover everything for yourself, 
but it, it seems as though no matter what your background is, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, no matter what it is, you, you go through there to actually find that kernel of truth for yourself. Yes? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, there's many different paths at the mountain, you know, similar light. The hope is that when people, you know, get into it, that it's not a trap that causes blinders or, or subdivisions, um, you know, and, you know, and, and disputes with other people as it has throughout time, but rather something that, that could unify, um, you know, but to say that God is to some totality of something within a paper or a book would be a limited God or God that is labeled as a certain gender or a certain persuasion. You know, that's all of a sudden a limit, a limitation. And so I, I view every day as a moment to understand God in a unique way. And it's very, at least to me, exploratory and open-ended, you know, so. <laughs> Great way to stay tapped into life too. Jacob, we need to take a break. It's our only break of the hour. We'll be gone two, two and a half minutes. So hang in folks. We are speaking with Jacob Cooper. He is a licensed clinical social worker. He is a deep spiritual explorer, and he is author of Life After Breath. It's based on a near-death experience he had at the age of three, and he's been learning and diving deep ever since. As I say, give us a couple of minutes, and we'll be back with more of Jacob Cooper, more of Manson Mitchell right here at the epicenter of Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. High school sports are as American as apple pie. And going to a game or meet is a chance to see the stars of tomorrow shine today. But as anybody who's ever attended a high school sporting event in Washington knows, you can't have the stars without the stripes. High schools are currently looking for new officials in almost every sport. Who looks good in stripes? Anybody looking for a way to stay connected to a sport they love if you like the idea of giving back to your community while earning a few extra bucks, chances are you'd look good in stripes too. We want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. No officials means no games. No stripes means no stars. And what kind of America would that be? Washington needs more high school officials. Go to highschoolofficials.com to sign up or learn more. That's highschoolofficials.com. 
On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Nicole Strickland, a well-respected researcher of the paranormal who rigorously investigates claims of ghosts and hauntings. On Saturday, Scott Mance, also known as Movie Mance, handicaps this year's Oscar races, and the Oscar goes to... Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. That's a difference, Cooper. That's Alice Cooper. (laughs) We're talking with Jacob Cooper. He is the author of Life After Breath, How a Brush with Fatality Gave Me a Glimpse of Immortality. Jacob, if people would like to get your book, I'm assuming it's available at all the major book places, but if they want to connect with you, what is your website? And is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. Um, so my, you could purchase the book. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles online. Uh, but you go on my website at jacoblcooper.com. That's jacoblcooper.com. You know, and there you could look up, you know, meditation services, Reiki services, hypnotherapy, you know, coaching, psychotherapy. Uh, but but it's funny. I know you're mentioning Alice Cooper. I was just talking to him about the other day. There was a whole ghost stories show that he was on, and he was talking about a visitation, you know, in a house. And I happen to be in the same exact town right now. It's in Copaig, New York. Or where he had that haunting, which is right next to Amityville, which is known as the Amityville <laughs> Horror. So right now, you know, there's a lot of spirit around me. But um, it's it's just interesting you bring up Alice Cooper. You know, they just saw you know a show about him. <laughs> that came That's to scary. Me, that came to me this morning. Oh, I know a Cooper we can use here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to haunt the listeners here. Don't worry. <laughs> we're, we're used to it. I come to my office and stuff is just off the desk. It's there's an energy around here. There's something to it. But I put out good stuff and try to help people as much as I can. So hopefully they'll back off of me. But who knows? <laughs> it's interesting you should say that because there is a, a friend of Suzanne and mine who used to have a a lovely office that he would rent out from time to time and for classes, workshops and whatnot. He used it himself and made made sure everything was neat as a pin. And he had a uh, office manager there who did likewise. Occasionally, there would be a metaphysical group, people who looked into the afterlife and uh, practiced mediumship, taught related principles. And they would gather and have their meetings. And the next morning, when my friend would go in or his office manager would unlock the door, they'd go in and find a mess. And they knew these people well enough. And there was a bond of trust between them that they didn't, because for one thing, if you're going to mess up an office deliberately, don't expect to have use of it again. Who wants that? And so, yes, yes, they would have to explain. This is the kind of thing that happens to us. Sorry, you know, maybe they saged it. Maybe they didn't, whatever their protocol was. But this kind of thing will happen. The spirits show up they they blow where they listeth to uh, quote the new testament and they show up and they have their effects and then we're free to speculate on how that can happen and the source of it and why they would attach to us particularly jacob in many cases attaching to very young people there's all that wonderful innocent playful energy maybe it attracts it but I would think it would make life difficult for someone who is of school age and trying to fit into society and within the confines and constraints of a classroom setting. Oh, yes, yes. I, I certainly 
experience that, and I speak about that in Life After Breath, how, yes, I had my near-death experience, but after having that, my brain was very much changed. As I mentioned before, the filter between the two worlds. And so having my brain shut down, there was a sliver of light that I connected to, and on a regular basis, I could you know, exist between two worlds, and I would visit the other side, as well as, you know, have interdimensional communication, you know, with spirit. And, you know, one experience that disvalidated how I was feeling was when I speak about this in Life After Breath, I turned to a classmate and I asked them if they were seeing what I was seeing. And they just looked at me, you know, with the Dwayne Johnson's people's eyebrow looked like I was from Mars. And that to me, you know, I know I suffocated my near-death experience, but that was even more suffocating to me, feeling very isolated, alone. And so I just tried to take the beach ball and put it under the water for quite some time. And that was a bit of a survival skill, but the thrival skill was being able to allow the beach ball to pop up and take ownership, you know, of this, you know, for to, for practical change and ownership and uh, owning my experience and who I was and not running away from that. So. And how were your parents about that? Did you discuss that with them? Did they know what had happened to you? I, I would imagine that at three, you would not have the language to yeah. talk about that kind of an experience. But was there a point later on where you can say, this is what happened to me and this is what's happening to me now? Yeah, you know, I really separated, not church, but spirit and state um, <laughs> with, with them. You know, my father's a psychotherapist, but they're more, they're, they're religious people, but they're more people invested in the here now than the hereafter with angels and sunshines and rainbows and that kind of stuff. But I speak about this in life after breath, you know, after waking up on the hospital bed, I just knew that my mother had no idea where I was and what I was going through. And that to me was like, it's a very difficult pill to swallow because at the time, you know, there's a pedestal that you put your parents on as all knowing and all awareness. And when that was taken from me, you know, that, that she was just a human being and there was parts of myself that she, even if I would try, she wouldn't be able to explain, you know, took, took a little bit of that, that this, that all omnipotent presence that I had of my mother to her no fault at the time. Uh, but I would say recently I had a sit down with them and I just, for the first time, just, we had snippets of it, but for the first time discussed and you know, to my surprise, there's even things that I learned about my near-death experience, you know, through them. You know, just on the surface value, I'm my own biggest skeptic, and I am pretty left-brained, and I even questioned for, for so much this experience, how it's possible at such a young age. And so if you look at early interviews, I would just throw out a number, like I was four or five years old, because I didn't believe it was possible to have memory of that clear past that age, and they said you were three. This was September of 1993 when you had this, and that just floored me because it seemed like so so soon ago and if, and I just didn't believe that it was possible to have such clear distinct memories you know of that at three years old and it, it blew my left brain and my skepticism away so there's great value in dialogue there's great value in discussion you know I would like to tie in a concept to that Jake in mentioning the term soul ecology and here's where we get into tradition and in your case, tradition, there <laughs> are my good friend Suzanne and I are close friends with Jody Levon, a magnificent medium, a very wise lady from Minneapolis. And she is Jewish. 
And she believes not only in the power of mediumship, which she practices elegantly to great applause, really, including from us, but she also believes in the concept of reincarnation as being a natural part of the continuity of life. I like to call it soul ecology. Maybe our souls get recycled in these various bodies, however many times we come back to Earth, to Earth school. What I'm curious to know, Jake, is how were you able to, if indeed you were, able to reconcile the concept of reincarnation with your Orthodox Jewish upbringing? Yeah, you know, it's within Jewish tradition, you know, there is reincarnation uh, talks. You know, if you look at Kabbalistic teachings or Jewish mysticism, it's very much there, you know, but but uh, for those familiar with Kabbalistic teachings, it's very occult. It's very hidden uh, for a reason in a sense that it's very potent. And so for people to have a firm understanding of it, they like people to be well-versed, well-trained within the faith prior to going to this to these deep kind of mystical teachings with great power comes great responsibility of it. And so, but now obviously that's changed as Hollywood has really bought into Kabbalistic teachings and different authors have become it a lot more mainstream. It's a lot different than what it was originated, you know, for when it was birthed, you know, in Israel in Safad, um, but uh, you know, which is a part of Israel. But uh, I would say, um, you know, I would say that the Jewish tradition spoke to the page of the book in the chapter that I was in, in this lifetime, but it didn't speak to the entirety of my own book, if that makes sense. So it spoke to this lifetime that I was in, you know, that I was born into and the family that I came from, but I understood that it, that it missed the totality of my experiences, which was not just limited by this one lifetime, one culture, one religion. And so I, I, saw it a little bit differently where I saw myself as a part of every culture, every civilization, not separate. And I think if people are able to practice that, use that a little bit more, they're able to feel a lot more connected to their fellows and brothers and sisters and not as separate by, you know, surface value teachings that have been a, a part of our own understanding. And so I, I, I saw it as something, reincarnation as something that, you know, had a, had, a, had a way for me to connect to the world a lot easier and formulate rapport with people better, you know, in connection. I, for our listenership that takes the metaphysical point of view, probably most or all of them can point to a period of time where something they read really opened up their thinking for them. And in your uh, story, Life After Breath, I was interested in the fact that you were led to some reading by Aunt Seal. And uh, she said, I've got some books for you to read. I, you know, I'd like to mentor you on, on this. So apparently she was somebody who took the metaphysical point of view. And I'm wondering what were some of the early things that you read where you went, oh, that's, uh, that's exactly how I think. That's how I see the world. She was giving you things to read. And what was it that in those early readings that made a big impression on you? Yeah, you know, I think in a way, and, uh, and I say this with my own book, when I have a story, it's nothing new. 
all right? You know, it's, it's new in a sense that it's coming from me, but, but eternity is within ourselves. And so I don't have a monopolization of it. But when you're reading something good, it just tickles a part of your soul mm-hmm. and gets rid of some of that amnesia that have come, you know, from being in this world and takes away that world weariness, you know, amplifies your own energy field. Uh, but the most transformational book that I've ever picked up to this day was Betty 80's Embraced by the Light, which was a bestseller, I do believe, in the 90s. And uh, Betty, if I'm not mistaken, is from out west, kind of around where you guys are. Uh, but her book was transformative for my life because, in a sense, it gave me a vernacular for a near-death experience. It gave me a universality behind it. You know, because for quite some time, I had this experience that was like a book just on a bookshelf, just collecting dust. And so from reading Betty's book, I was able to open up that book again and have a language to describe it and to understand that there were other people like me with it. And, you know, in a way, it was a little bit deflating because I thought, you know, at the time I was just so unique in having this NDE thing. I didn't know that there was maybe five to 10 percent of the population that are that are having this almost, as, as, as they're saying, as science is advancing, that incubational period between life and death is increasing uh, so Betty's was to me to this day the most transformative book, but obviously going through all the different readers such as Sylvia Brown and my birthday twin Shirley MacLaine, um, you know, picking books by John Edward, James Von Prague, you know, all the you know great New Age authors were were, were good. Uh, but I would say again, it's just kind of like this deja vu, amnesiac feeling when you pick something up. Otherwise, you wouldn't be reading it if a part of you didn't identify with the teachings in the book you know, you wouldn't be able to understand it. So it's just a mere reflection of what you hold within yourself and your the truth within your own soul. You know, it sounds like from the ones that you've named, you were introduced to a lot of afterlife and mediumship books at that age. And that was, you know, exactly what you needed at that time. Yes. Absolutely. And it allowed me to just get back on track and to recenter and to pivot um, it wasn't creating like a new track. It just was all very helpful to, to help me recenter and to take ownership, you know, of, of this path, you know, so I'm forever grateful. And part of my motivation behind reading, writing Life After Breath was to give back what I was given, not only just when my body was lifeless and I was given the eternal breath of God and reminded that I was the eternal breath of God, despite the breath of the body shutting down. You know, and so that was my goal is to give people a breath of life when they're feeling, you know, hopeless, breathless, lifeless. But also, you know, when I was going through difficult times in the dark winter of the dark night of the soul, picking up that book, going to that library and just saying to myself, I want to join these people in those bookshelves and give back what I was given. It's all a part of paying it forward, you know. Where does that take you? to the present day, and I know you've been talking in, about your past, but also in, in current terms. For example, uh, in chapter eight of your book, you talk about uh, the great respect you had for a Korean gentleman who led a yoga class, and you met uh, at least one remarkable person there who was psychically tuned in. Do you see yourself today as the kind of person that people can read in a way that I can't? I can't read auras there, but somebody who might have that or be sensitive to your nature come up to you and say, I want to engage you in a conversation about this, that, or the other thing because I see you as being much like myself, a true sensitive. Yeah, you know, and I I think what's helpful for myself 
and I don't say it's develop it's developing. It's just getting in touch with with that that we all have it because I think we all have the gift, but I think we have to be able to tune into it. So when I do self-induced Reiki or I practice Reiki on clients, I find that as a great psychic amplifier to pick up on people's energies. And like anything else, the more that you use it, the more familiar you are with the language. You know, because I think it's, you know, to get these messages, it comes to people differently. But at least to myself, it's a lot of, it's a lot of like charades where you get a lot of different imagery, you know, just, you know, sometimes you'll say to things, you know, point blank and people will look at you and then you just interpret it and they're like, oh, okay, I understand that. So it's being able to interpret the signs and symbols from the hereafter to this lifetime. But that's certainly something that um, I'm very much open to do. And it's funny, I have a friend of mine who is a medium who I mentioned in the book and every reading he comes through and he goes, you need to be giving readings. You need to be giving mediumship every time with every medium. And so I know that's something that I'm being nudged to do a little bit more. And it's something obviously that I had as a kid, you know, it's just uncovering that, you know, and being a little more tuned into and sharpened up to those, you know, that, that energy. So. If you choose that path, the mediums of my acquaintance would welcome you among their ranks subject to all the intense preparation which goes on for years before you're practicing quality mediumship as i would refer to it so i certainly would just my opinion as a guy doing an interview i would encourage you to look into it but i have to say that it is so prevalent this concept of people who say i'm a medium or i studied mediumship whether the uh, credentials are hard one or they learned it over a matter of six months and then they hang out a shingle. I will admit that I'm a bit cynical to the extent that I worry about a world in which there are more mediums than dentists. Right. Right. I, you know, I always say, be careful where you place your grief and your vulnerability to. And so at least to me, that's why I don't advertise it because, you know, when you lose a loved one or when you're going through a difficult time, you're in a place of vulnerability and you that could lead to abuse of power for others or abuse of position. And so I think for anyone listening, it's obviously important to do your due diligence where you do get your reading, where you do get your information, making sure there's credible. I know there's organizations such as Forever Family Foundation. Some people study at Arthur Finley, you know, for, for, for de- you know, development. Some are licensed under Bob Olson's, you know, directory. But, you know, it's important for people to be scientifically and evidentially tested beyond yes. their gifts because it's a very big responsibility for, for sitters who are going through their own, you know, circumstances that brought them to the reader. So, yeah, the grief is so profound when people have lost someone and wanting to connect. And yet, you know, other than a few cases that you named, people aren't really licensed, you know, mm-hmm. to do that. And they can just say, you know, I'm a medium and, you know, pay right. me and I'll, I'll read you. But that's, that's not really good enough. And when we've talked to some of the best mediums uh, that we know, they all talk about, you know, ongoing training. Development and, and training. Yeah, exactly. It isn't like... Uh, the funniest experience Gary and I had is uh, one time when a woman said that she had one mediumistic experience, one, 
And then she said, how much do you think I should charge? And that was her first question. <laughs> See, that's what I'm getting at. That was like, her first question. It's like, oh my God. My sister's on the other side. She helped me get in touch with someone. Yeah. And I think I have it in me to be a medium. How much do you think I should charge? Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. You go back to the back bench and you learn it like everyone else and move right. your way forward very methodically. That's right. number one. Yeah, I mean, just because you can play chopsticks doesn't mean that you should be getting a full ride to Juilliard. I mean, you got to you go. work your way a little bit up there or, or Berkeley, whatever, you know, top tier musical school. Uh, you know, but I think it's about understanding the soul and understanding the multidimensional parts of ourselves. And if we're able to do that, we're able to put ourselves in better hands, much like we wouldn't take our cars if we had great respect for our cars and we took care of our cars to any random car wash, we'd be selective. And so I think the more tangible, the intangible becomes the more valuable we understand uh, where we put ourselves and who we surround ourselves with and, and in our hands, much like if you're having heart issues, we wouldn't just go to any random cardiologist. We would want to be in the best possible hands. You know, so mm -hmm. the same thing with our own suffering, with our own grief, with our own yep. you know, matters of the soul. Yep. Very good. Well said. Yeah. With the two minutes that we have left, I'm sure you can cover the entire subject. Where do you see science and religion shaking hands? Take your time. We've got two minutes. <laughs> so, well, regarding science, I really think it's, it's, it's advancing a lot. You know, when I listen to a lot of different scientists, and maybe I'm just in the small little bubble of metaphysical, but they're almost sounding like, uh, you know, philosophers these days. They're very, you know, they're very just deep and broad-based in their thinking and outside the box and not as boxed in as once they once were. And so I feel that spirituality and science are really working one with, with each other and learning from each other. You know, science is the capacity to ground, you know, this stuff and the capacity to be in this earth and to be trusted. And I think when we've, we understand what's behind science, we're able to broaden ourselves beyond it and to be a lot more open-ended and discovery for understanding the infinite intelligence past what meets the eye or under the microscope. And I think the two need each other to, to really uplift each other and, and to have a bigger momentum past their endeavors, if that makes I'm sense. kind of like a right hand and a left hand. Right? Shaking hands. Yeah, very good. Very Excellent. Good. Jacob Cooper, call him Jake. <laughs> loved having you on with us and we'd love to continue this conversation another time. I wish you the best of success. Many, many, many copies being sold of Life After Breath. Well done, a fine read, and I wish you a lot of success in your endeavors. A true pleasure and honor to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. All right, coming up next, we have Jupiter rising. You want to say anything about that? I, what I want to do sometimes is one of these home and homes where we have Eileen Grimes on our show, and then we hang uh, around and go on her show because it's just a hoot. And you'll learn a lot. Well, and the stories are I'm great. I'm sure she will be open to that, Gary. Fantastic. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Please stay safe out there. If you've been vaccinated, you're ahead of us. We're still looking for our appointments. Take care, everyone. And whenever possible, stay tuned to AM 1150, Seattle's home of alternative talk.